Good evening, everybody, and welcome to the People's School for Marxist-Leninist Studies. Uh, tonight is November 15th, 2022. Uh, we're going to be studying political economy. What we're going to be learning is we're going to be reading from political economy textbook from the Academy of Sciences of the USSR that was republished by New Outlook Publishers in 2020, uh, as well as uh, Value, Price, and Profit by Karl Marx. So without further ado, we're going to get started. Uh, Value, Price, and Profit by Karl Marx. This is Chapter 14, The Struggle Between Capital and Labor and Its Results. Having shown that the periodical resistance on the part of the working men against a reduction of wages and their periodical attempts at getting a rise of wages are inseparable from the wages system and dictated by the very fact of labor being assimilated to commodities and therefore subject to the laws regulating the general movement of prices. Having furthermore shown that a general rise of wages would result in a fall in the general rate of profit, but not affect the average prices of their commodities. Uh, or their values. The question now ultimately arises, how far in this incessant struggle between capital and labor, the latter is likely to prove successful? I might answer by a generalization and say that as with all other commodities, so with labor, its market price will, in the long run, adapt itself to its value. That therefore, despite all the ups and downs, and do what he may, the working man will, on an average, only receive the value of his labor, which resolves into the value of his laboring power, which is determined by the value of the necessaries required for its maintenance and reproduction, which value of necessaries finally is regulated by the quantity of labor wanted to produce them. But there are some peculiar features which distinguish the value of the laboring power or the value of labor from the values of all other commodities. The value of the laboring power is formed by two elements, the one merely physical, the other historical or social. Its ultimate limit is determined by the physical element, that is to say, to maintain and reproduce itself, to perpetuate its physical existence. The working class must receive the necessaries absolutely indispensable for living and multiplying. The value of those indispensable necessaries forms, therefore, the ultimate limit of the value of labor. On the other hand, the length of the working day is also limited by ultimate, although very elastic boundaries. Its ultimate limit is given by the physical force of the laboring man. If the daily exhaustion of his vital forces exceeds a certain degree, it cannot be exerted anew day by day. However, as I said, this limit is very elastic. A quick succession of unhealthy and short-lived generations will keep the labor market as well supplied as a series of vigorous and long-lived generations. Besides this mere physical element, the value of labor is in every country determined by a traditional standard of life. It is not a mere physical life, but it is the satisfaction of certain wants springing from the social conditions in which people are placed and reared up. The English standard of life may be reduced to the Irish standard, the standard of the, 
of life of a German peasant to that of a Livonian peasant. The important part which historical tradition and social habitude play in this respect, you may learn from Mr. Thornton's work on overpopulation, where he shows that the average wages in different agricultural districts of England still nowadays differ more or less according to the more or less favorable circumstances under which the districts have emerged from the state of serfdom. The historical or social element entering into the value of labor may be expanded or contracted or altogether extinguished so that nothing remains but the physical limit. During the time of the anti-Jacobin war undertaken as the incorrigible tax eater and sinecurist, old George Rose used to say, to save the comforts of our holy religion from the inroads of the French infidels, the honest English farmers, so tenderly handled in a former chapter of ours, depressed the wages of the agricultural laborers, even beneath that mere physical minimum, but made up by poor laws the remainder necessary for the physical perpetuation of the race. This was a glorious way to convert the wages laborer into a slave, proud yeoman into a pauper. Yeah, real quick, um, nothing specific on the text, but generally I'm just annoyed at how most jobs that are mostly physically moving are never seen as like a, um, what am I trying to say? Basically, they're never in encapsulated into the the value and the cost, right, of, 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 of capital, right? It's just just happen to be there doing the thing like like we said yesterday with waitresses that's all thank you yeah i think uh you know marks um of course has a style of writing which is very in-depth and that's useful in a certain respect but basically what he's saying here is under capitalism you'll be paid just enough to keep you showing up the next day and so you can survive to keep working um, to be honest uh, and it's, you know, it's interesting he uses the, ver the word labor value here. We commonly talk about value produced by labor. So those are two separate things. Labor value he's talking about here is as a commodity. Labor is sold as a commodity under capitalism. And so this labor value is the minimal uh, sort of value they need to pay you to keep you showing up. That's distinct from value produced by labor, which is what you would be entitled to under socialism, which is basically whatever is produced through the labor, the value of that um, is what the working class would have access to under socialism in contrast to a labor value under capitalism. Thank you, comrade. Um, and just building off what a uh, comrade, honestly, really the eight hour work day is really not that necessary because what you produce um, to make up for what you're getting paid is m a mere fraction of what you of the actual labor you put in to where that you're just working extra as an arbitrary thing so the boss can make that extra value money and then you're only just getting paid like i said enough just to keep you coming back the next day while still going um paycheck to paycheck <laughs> yeah i'm curious about it really seems like he's giving the almost like a pretext to capitalism in the early forms of kind of like the French revolutions that were happening. Um, he mentions the, I might pronounce this, the Yoiman British, I think they were peasants. And it seems like 
he might be kind of alluding to how capitalism, you know, is sprouting out of something that was feudalistic. So I just find that really interesting. People like to use the term late stage capitalism as if it's necessarily worse than early stage capitalism, but I don't think that's dialectical. You know, early stage capitalism was very, very bad as we, you know, like what they ripped people off their land and whatnot. Yeah, you hear uh, late stage capitalism and people think it means the end, which it's fine, but I think it's more like as of late, like the, the modern trend of capitalism that we're in. I also think that it's also a, a kind of showing that there, there isn't really a bottom to the conditions of the working class can be exposed to, except for what is, what is necessary. Okay, this is good for like most private sector jobs or in places of employment that I guess Marx was trying to I don't know how we could say uh, adhere to, but how can you relate something like this, what we're studying tonight, to p- private sector jobs, such as the federal government, state, city and county jobs that are unionized, that have set salaries and bargaining units in place? So how could something like this be related to that specific part of the employment sector or the workforce, should I say? Marx is talking about a time when governments were very small in Europe, especially in Germany and Europe. Most people did not work for municipalities. In fact, at the time Marx wrote this, they were just beginning in the Industrial Revolution where factories were just beginning. Uh, Before that, everyone worked in their own home, making a little chair out of wood in their own home, that kind of idea. But so, Generally, what Marx is saying at that time is was apropos at that time. Now, today, the majority of people do not work for municipalities. In a socialist society, they do. Think about it. The boss in a social society is basically the society. And everyone has a spot in the society. There should be no private enterprise under socialist society and a, and a real socialism. And that's the point. So I, I think that um, the observation that Marx at that time was apropos, he's still apropos today. Yeah, I was essentially going to say the same thing uh, General Secretary said. Governments were a lot smaller back then. Uh, as time progressed, uh, we saw federalization and unitary governments uh, popping up to uh, necessitate a lot of the global affairs they were going after. Uh, and I think that uh, uh, like a small, more privatized uh, form of capitalism uh, definitely relates to a you know, more shared uh, responsibility in society, uh, that being you know, public service and stuff like that through the government. I don't think many of these government employees are producing surplus value at like the ground level, but I think some of them necessitate like needed roles like that of the service worker, of the crisis service worker, people who work at food pantries. They don't generate surplus value, 
but they do necessitate uh, caring for the people who are swept under during this whole uh, uh, production of commodity dance that happens now with federalization and unitary governments bouncing off of a more private market. Following what the general secretary said, I want to go one a little bit further and uh, make sure that everybody inform everybody that if the government workforce, what they called back then, was was part of the government was part of the privileged class. There was no civil service back then. There was no test. No no common people became uh, you know clerks or, or people who worked for the government. Everybody who worked for the government uh, basically came from the ruling class. Was was not treated as the normal common people, you know, would be treated. Uh, they were totally separate, uh, and as I said, they were basically part of the elite, privileged class, uh, and, and Marx wouldn't have included them uh, uh, in his uh, theories. Thank you. I wanted to say this. In uh, today, the municipalities, especially in the concentration of monopoly capitalism, especially any union that belongs to a municipality or, for example, the mail, the U.S. mailing is increasingly either suffering from bureaucratic labor, as we've seen from the early days of the 20th century, and we are especially seeing the phenomenon of existing municipalities being privatized by the federal government, especially since the establishment of neoliberalism in the 80s or with Reaganomics and Thatcherism and whatnot. And that's my final comment on the matter. You know, we got to be careful with definitions of the words like labor, say we'll say labor and capital, right? Labor as in working class, capital as the capitalist class, okay? Now, the labor power that is the exchange value, basically the salary that workers are paid for to maintain them, um, to keep them alive. So it's the exchange value of, of their labor power is a salary, okay? And then the product of labor is what they produce. Now the difference, of course, would be the surplus value that's taken by capitalists, right? But in a socialist society, you're gonna have surplus value, but it's not, it belongs to society, doesn't belong to private ownership, to private owners of the means of production. So like the extra surplus value goes to pay for all the things that are good for society in general, not for the profits, private personal property of capitalists and their uh, fat bank accounts, uh, yachts and, and uh, private airplanes and so on. So that's all kind of blurry on what the question was initially, but I'll try to answer as best I can from a uh, perspective of a public sector employee. So I do work in the public sector. While we do have a union, um, there's still only so much we can actually do and set because basically the way the laws and the rules are written, it's the people above, be it the managers and the agencies, um, they set how much we work, how long we work, what exactly we do with that. And while um, the collective bargaining agreement that's been written out for us can say like what 
may be a discriminatory practice or what may or may not be allowed, there's still within the language of it, um, this is the right of management and the agency, and these are the rights of the employees. Probably in about a week, I could easily, um, for the work I do, have interviewed enough people to match my monthly paycheck, and then everything else is since I work in an agency that's a fee-based thing, it all just goes straight up to the the agency and the federal government. And um, if, in, like it said, in a uh, perfect socialist where the, every, the government actually works for the good of the people, this would not so much be a problem. But I do confess some days I'm rather depressed because when it seems like most of the budget just goes towards wars and lining the pockets of war profiteers, it can be kind of a downer. By comparing the standard wages or labors or values of labor in different countries, and by comparing them in different historical epochs of the same country, you will find that the value of labor itself is not a fixed but a variable magnitude even supposing the values of all other commodities to remain constant. A similar comparison would prove that not only the market rates of profit change, but its average rates. But as to profits, there exists no law which determines their minimum. We cannot say what is the ultimate limit of their decrease. And why can we not fix that limit? Because although we can fix the minimum of wages, we cannot fix their maximum. We can only say that the limits of the working day being given, the maximum of profit corresponds to the physical minimum of wages and that wages being given, the maximum of profit corresponds to such a prolongation of the working day as is compatible with the physical forces of the laborer. The maximum of profit is therefore limited by the physical minimum of wages and the physical maximum of the working day. It is evident that between the two limits of the maximum rate of profit, an immense scale of variations is possible. The fixation of its actual degree is only settled by the continuous struggle between capital and labor. The capitalists constantly tending to reduce wages to their physical minimum and to extend the working day to its physical maximum, while the working man constantly presses in the opposite direction. The matter resolves itself into a question of the respected powers of the combatants. And two, as to the limitation of the working day in England, as in all other countries, it has never been settled except by legislative interference. Without the working men's continuous pressure from without that interference would have never taken place. But at all events, the result was not to be attained by private settlement between the working men and the capitalists. This very necessity of general political action affords the proof that in its merely economical action, capital is the stronger side. Um, but even before labor unions, especially like in Britain, where Marx is writing about, even before labor unions became like recognizable or like big enough, like we would do it, there was pressure from the beginning. 
um, it doesn't take long to realize it. When you have people um, in my class, actually, I have my kids read primary source documents in which they're talking um, in parliament about kids working like 14, 15, 16 hours a day. Kids talking about waking up, going to a factory, getting one lunch break, working like 16 hour shifts, going home, getting something to eat and going to bed. That is their literal day. In, in this world of that transition to capitalism, you still have people that see the hor horrors of that. So there's pressure from working people before there were unions. So you have like unions are going to grow stronger as the Industrial Revolution keeps going. But right from the beginning, you had that pushback because people, I mean, people can't work under that. People can't live under those conditions. I mean, we see it in America um, before labor unions were happening. So it, it's a two-way street, right? And you're going to see people like some politicians do have a conscience and do say that's wrong. Children and working people should not work that many hours. It was always a struggle. And that's when, um, as Marx mentioned, that we had to have uh, governmental interference because it was never going to be um, satisfactory otherwise. Uh, the private sector and the labor sector, private, uh, the capitalists had a hell of a lot more power than the government at that time, too. So, you know, the, the workers needed the government behind them to get some of these uh, draconian measures um, absolved. Uh, thank you, comrade. Um, I just wanted to, to clarify what Mark says in this passage, which is that there's two limits to the rate of profit uh, that he's talking about here. One is the minimum amount to pay the worker so that he can survive. And the other limit is the maximum length of the working day so that it's not so long that it kills the worker. Those are the two limits. Within those limits, the capitalists will try and push for the maximum profit. And of course, as was pointing out, unions shorten the working day, bringing down one limit, and raise the amount that we get paid for our work, bringing up the other limit. Thank you. Yeah, um, I think this is an excellent example of the dialectic and really shows Marx's true understanding of Hegel. Like, it's, it's really amazing. Uh, the, they'll work you the maximum amount of hours you can, the capitalist, uh, they can, uh, uh, and pay you the least amount of wages they possibly can to maximize their profit. And the worker wants the exact opposite over that. And as Marx says, it resolves. It resolves over time and over them dancing with each other and uh, checking their contradictions and checking their truths with each other. And this is a process that happens over time, but it is not linear. Yeah, again, thank you. I usually have comments to say and less questions, but um, how do I put this? Although Marx is correct, right? Like the logic is correct. Um, I think what he's also trying to say is because the capitalists always say this, oh, cost, cost, cost. But it's it's BS because, for example, real life example, right? I got hired. I made, let's say, 15 bucks an hour, right? When they gave me a dollar raise, they just raised the price of something else by a buck. So you're not really costing them any more. And nobody ever calls this out. Anyways, I got more of that. So that's it. Just just a little real life example. Thank you. Uh, yeah, actually, that was sort of my um, same question was how 
how is it the minimum if like, for instance, right now with inflation has gone up so much, shouldn't uh, that also go up? Thank you. Uh, yeah, we, uh, we'd, like, uh, we'd like our wages to go up with inflation, the cost of living increase, but of course you gotta fight for that. It's not something that's given, given to us on the platter. So yeah, yeah, we'd love that, thank you. Something else that adds to the inflation issues it doesn't come from uh, nowhere. You have to raise uh, the prices of the commodities you sell first. And, uh, and, the, and that also goes into uh, the uh, issue of uh, issues of, of attempts at, um, of, uh, of currency uh, stabilization, which uh, uh, like, for example, uh, uh, price fixing. Uh, two things. I think that's an example of the limit of the bottom limit of wages. They'll pay you as little as possible. So if you're able to get a, a raise, but they're doing things like increasing price or uh, cutting corners, uh, like like procedural corners, uh, that's not a real increase in your wage. It's still the same value, right? Uh, uh, that's the bottom limit you're describing, right, of wages, and also. Uh, if taxes are a form of surplus labor value. So this is from the textbook on political economy from the Academy of Sciences from the USSR. Uh, this is Gold and Paper Bunny. Uh, it's from the part two, chapter four subsection. So we're going to go ahead and read that. Gold and Paper Money. Under conditions of developed commodity production, Paper money is often used instead of gold coins. The issue of paper money was engendered by the practice of the circulation of worn and devalued coins, which had become transformed into symbols of gold, symbols of money. Paper money means money tokens issued by the state, which people are obliged to accept instead of gold, so far as its function as circulation medium is concerned. Paper money has no value of its own. For this reason, it cannot fulfill the function of measure of the value of commodities. However, much paper money may be issued. It represents only the value of that quantity of gold which is necessary for commodity circulation to be maintained. Paper money is not accepted in exchange for gold. If paper money is issued in accordance with the amount of gold needed for circulation, the purchasing power of paper money, i.e. the amount of commodities which it can buy, coincides with the purchasing power of gold money. But usually the state issues paper money to cover its expenses, especially in wartime, during crises or other emergencies, without regard to the needs of commodity circulation. When the production and circulation of commodities are restricted, or when an exceptional amount of paper money is issued, the latter is found to be in excess of the quantity of gold needed for circulation. Money has been issued, let us say, to an extent double what is needed. In such a case, each unit of paper money, dollar, mark, franc, etc., will represent half the quantity of gold, i.e. the paper will depreciate by half. The first attempts to issue paper money took place in China as far back as the 12th century as the 1100s. Paper money was issued in America in 1690 and in France in 1716. Britain began to issue paper money at the time of the Napoleonic Wars and Russia 
paper money was first issued and Catherine II's reign. So the talk on gold versus paper money, I've always, everybody knows this is silk and cloth or whatever. But the question then is in the seventies, Nixon took a country off the gold standard. And how does the petrodollar function then? Or is that more of just like an international thing versus a domestic thing? I do actually, are you able to hear me? Okay. Yes. All right. Excellent. So uh, regarding the Nixon taking us off the gold standard and bringing us on to the petrodollar, from what I understand about it, the petrodollar is an agreement between the oil-making countries and the U.S., uh, where the oil countries would sell their oil exclusively in dollars and then reinvest their profits in the U.S. bonds. And in return, the United States would basically guarantee their sovereignty by um, giving them weapons and de facto making them a protector, but not, you know, in the medieval sense of a protector. If, if that makes sense. So what the petrodollar is basically doing now is that instead of our currency being backed by the physical gold in Fort Knox or wherever it's being held, it's now being backed by this agreement of oil. It essentially, it's just being backed by oil. That's why historically, every time a country has messed with that system, they tend to not be countries anymore, like Iraq and um, Syria and Libya. Things of that nature. Oh, thank you. Yeah, just a question. Um, so I've also heard the term fiat currency, where um, there is that agreement that was mentioned by. Um, but my question would be, how does uh, I guess fiat currency and outside that, what is there really to say? Like, what is exactly one dollar worth? Because it does seem like the petrodollar is more just an agreement between countries, but while the dollar used to be based on whatever uh, amount of gold, like, what is it now? Thank you. Okay, so all this is happening after Marx died, so this is one of the reasons why this isn't mentioned in this book. So part of the thing was, especially in Europe, during, I think, the First and Second World Wars, you know, because of all the chaos that was going on over there, and all the money they were spending. Uh, basically, they traded goods with the U.S. in exchange for their gold, right? So most of them got off the gold standard early because they took their gold that was sitting in their bank reserves and shipped them over to us. Uh, a, for safekeeping, and B, uh, you know, to get necessary supplies. So we were one of the last big economies that had the gold standard. So when we got off the gold standard, fiat basically means, well, if everything is pegged to the U.S. dollar, then, or at least most uh, currencies back then, then you can use the U.S. dollar as a sort of barometer, right? It's sort of based on itself in a weird way. But like Marx is saying there, you can't uh, print more money and then magically end up with more value. You know, if you have, let's say, a billion $1 notes, you know, and that's all the currency you have. Well, if you print $2 billion notes, you have half the value of the dollar. So it doesn't... It, it, it still applies even if it's not based on a literal physical object because that dollar has to be worth something. It has to be worth a, a quantifiable amount. Um, I'm not an expert exactly on how they calculate that, but the more they print, uh, you know, if you print more than you take out of circulation, you are decreasing that value. Yeah, this actually kind of ties off of what the last comrade was saying in terms of inflation and uh, World War II. 
basically, this touches on the United States and the Soviet Union right after World War II, and in terms of inflation and, you know, the gold standard. So in World War II, the United States printed so much money that if they didn't get rid of their cash flow because they had such a huge reserve, they're going to have a skyrocketing inflation. And to combat that, they initiated the Marshall Plan, which basically just threw all of that excess cash over at Europe to, you know, rebuild the country and basically finance their markets with American dollars to, you know, start circulating the American currency all around the world to make it as strong as it is, leading to the petrodollar as well. That's how America counted inflation and strengthened its dollar. Whereas the Soviet Union at the same time under Stalin, they printed out like six times the amount of money that their economy needed and they were going to face six times inflation. Stalin, what he did in the Soviet Union at the time was actually start taking those old rubles back, trading in with the new gold-backed ruble, and basically you know, uh, transitioning the economy to use the new currency, base it off a certain value, uh, install price controls and basically bring inflation down and restabilize the economy within you know just a couple of years and basically turn the Soviet economy into a powerhouse that uh, you know they didn't need a Marshall Plan to uh, boost themselves up they just you know took control of the currency and you know stomped down inflation with uh, just good economic no, planning. And uh, if anyone's interested, I'll send the uh, article that talks about it. It's from a uh, Stalinism.ru from some Russian comments in the comments. 100 uh, percent. Uh, the fiat currency is essentially based off of itself. It's based off of, of required payment. You cannot go into uh, I'm from Buffalo, so I go to Tim Hortons. I can't go into Tim Hortons and pay Canadian dollars. I need to pay USD. It's also backed by the amount of debt in the float and the amount of actual money in circulation uh, 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 and also interest rates. Right. All of this gives the dollar itself value. Uh, absolutely correct. And I would say uh, it's not an apt way to describe uh, 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 the dollar being backed by oil. I think that oil is a convenient commodity because it's energy based and it allows the U.S. to go all over the globe. Uh, uh, it's a convenient commodity to assert dominance, geopolitical dominance. It's not backed. It's backed by its debt. It's backed by the amount that's in the float. Uh, same with uh, same concept that Marx is talking about here with with gold. Uh, how much is actually in circulation, except now there's also debt and your required use of it and interest rates that give it added value. Oh, I was just going to comment how straightforward this textbook is. I think uh, when, you know, like I had to take macroeconomics 101 and for my quote unquote liberal arts major and just like how they try to create, you know, like some jargony words, but this was just very straightforward. Paper money is, you know, is, it said it's just money. Or it's just like a paper that I, I can't remember the exact, exact wording that was written there, but it's very straightforward. What is the relationship with fiat currency and taxes? I know we have to pay our taxes in American USD, and that kind of creates a legitimacy for the currency. Um, does that actually, is that just kind of bourgeois? Um, rhetoric there, or is that actually why it has value to some extent? So regarding taxes and, and why we have to pay it, it I mean, every government is going to have taxes, but specifically for our fiat, uh, as one of the other comrades stated, basically every single dollar that's printed is debt. It's something that we have to, uh, we have an obligation to pay back. 
the who are we paying back is the Federal Reserve. But if you actually look at your your dollars itself, at the very bottom, it'll say Federal Reserve note. Note is a legal term, basically stating that it's a form of debt. You owe one dollar to pay off that dollar. So in order for us to pay off the interest rate, that's why the country has implemented a income tax system. So every dollar you make, you have to give a portion of it to Uncle Sam so he could pay off his debt that he owes to the Federal Reserve System. And the Federal Reserve System is just a mixture of the banks and the government intertwined together to make our monetary system that we have. I just wanted to make a quick note on a term called fractional reserve banking where banks only need to hold a portion of the money that they loan out. And then the assets that they use are used as credit to purchase another asset. But we can see that probably best right now with Elon Musk buying Twitter, but using Tesla to back the purchase where when one of those dominoes falls, the inflation and the created imaginary dollars just catch up with each other. That's all I wanted to add. Thank you. Uh, what I was going to say, uh, continue on with our theme of money, is that any money's uh, value comes from the fact that the fact that the state is the single issuer and that there is some threat uh, associated with the uh, uh, some kind of collections process that, uh, that 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 induces demand for it. And, and and as far as I know, all the national debt is is just an, a, a going on with what uh, someone else said is that every time you print money, you have debt. That it's an account of all the dollars we have ever printed. Question: Why do conservatives support going back on the gold standard? Let me just answer uh, Cameron Angelo's question right now about the uh, the gold about conservatives wanting to go in the gold standard. That is that's very that's a very good question. Um, the reason is they want the dollar to be backed by something, because right now it isn't backed by anything. If you look at uh, the uh, uh, amount of, uh, of money in the American money supply, it was about two trillion dollars in 1980, and now it's 22 trillion. And there has been no, no increase in physical industrial production since 1980. If any, it, in fact, industrial production has collapsed since 1980. Ronald Reagan destroyed the steel industry in the early 1980s. And so uh, what is backing up that money? What's backing up that money is U.S. imperialism, is U.S. Uh, extracting value from other countries like the the, the oil that has been looted from Syria for, uh, for the last uh, decade. And so uh, uh, the conservatives uh, scratching their heads look at this situation and they see a disaster is coming. And they look at the amount of debt and the debt doesn't back up anything. The debt is a disaster in the making. You look at the amount of debt, they say, oh my God, the, the economy is going to blow up. And so they want to back the dollar with something. And so they, they want to back, go back to backing it with gold. And so uh, uh, this is what this is why they're saying this. And uh, um, it's a very uh, simple minded answer. Thank you. It says an extraordinarily large issue of paper money leading to its depreciation and used by the ruling classes for the purpose of transferring the burden 
of state expenditure onto the backs of the working masses and increasing their exploitation. It is called inflation. 9 Infla p.m. Inflation, which gives rise to an increase in the, in the cost of goods, bears heaviest upon the working people because the wages and salaries of the workers lag behind the rise in prices. Capitalists and landlords benefit from inflation, owing above all to the fall in the real wages of industrial and agricultural workers. Inflation benefits those capitalists who export their commodities. As a result of the fall in real wages and the reduction thereby of the cost of production of commodities, it becomes possible for them to compete successfully with foreign capitalists and landlords, sorry, and increase the sale of their commodities. And then we'll go ahead and read this page as well, and we'll stop for another round of questions and comments. This is from part two, chapter 21, subsection, the first world war and the beginning of general crisis capitalism. So the first world war was the result of the sharpening of contradictions between the imperialist powers arising out of the struggle to redivide the world and spheres of influence. Alongside the old imperialist powers, new ones had grown up, which had been too late for the partition of the world. German imperialism appeared on the scene. Germany had taken the path of capitalist development later than a number of other countries and arrived to join in the share out and arrived to join in the share out of markets and spheres of influence when the world was already divided up among the old imperialist powers. As early as the beginning of the 20th century, however, Germany having outstripped Britain as regards the level of industrial development, took, place, took second place in the world and the first in Europe. Germany began to squeeze Britain and France out of the world markets. The change in the relation of forces, economic and military, between the principal capitalist states brought to the front the question of redividing the world. In the struggle for the redivision of the world, Germany, taking her stand in alliance with Austria-Hungary, clashed with Britain, France, and Tsarist Russia, which was dependent on them. The war shook the capitalist world to its very foundations. and the scale on which it was fought, it threw into the shade all previous wars and the history of mankind. The war provided the monopolies with the source of enormous enrichment. The capitalists of the United States did especially well out of it. The profits of the American monopolies as a whole in 1917 were three or four times what they had been in 1914. In the five years of war, 1914 to 1918, the American monopolies received more than $35 million profit before deduction of tax. The biggest monopolies increased their profits tenfold. You didn't explain, like, uh, how are the uh, conservatives who want to restore the gold standard wrong, exactly? Yeah, they're, they're not wrong. There's nothing wrong in having a gold standard. Um, uh, one of the comrades earlier referred to how Stalin established the gold standard uh, in the Soviet Union. So that's not a bad thing. Um, it's uh, so. Uh, does that answer your question? Uh, I, I think so. Uh, also, to, uh, like, what did you say with the Ponzi scheme again? Uh, banks not keeping the full amount of uh, asset 
that they have in liability, right? Like banks not having the full amount of money that they owe you when you request, uh, let's say every one of the town goes into the uh, USA bank, whatever, uh, and go, I'd like all of my money. They wouldn't be able to do it. And then they, uh, they front that by getting other sources of capital. It sounds exactly like a Ponzi scheme. But uh, uh, um, I have a question. If we just go to the gold standard, what happens to the debt? I mean, it's still there. It still exists. People still owe some sort of agreement they made, a mortgage, whatever. Yeah, okay. Uh, when, when the U.S. went off the gold standard in um, 1972 or 1972, uh, uh, gold was like uh, $35 per ounce something like that. Now, if the U.S. went back onto the gold standard, uh, we would be going back onto the gold standard at the current price, which is about seventeen dollars or $1,800 an ounce. And so uh, uh, what would happen is that then all the, all the dollars that are issued now would just be uh, representable and would be backed up by some amount of gold in Fort Knox. It wouldn't be as much as it was in 1972, but it would be something. And so uh, I, I think the main, uh, the main thing that this does is that it puts a, uh, puts a break on the Federal Reserve pumping out money every day, increasing the money supply so that they can pass it over to their friends in investment banking and so they can invest in more paper values, real estates, yachts, whatever it is that strikes their fancy that day. And so this is, uh, this is the conservatives attempt to put a break on the expansion of the money supply and the speculation by the super rich. Yes, thank you. And again, I'm always the, uh, I'll call it the simpleton here. And I just like to break it down very, very basic. By the laws of physics and nature and Einstein, does inflation have to exist? If I add $1, does it need to make the other dollars worth less? Or is that something we do as humans? Also, oh, real quick, now that I think about it, um, wasn't one of the issues with the gold standard that you can only have so much money because there's only so much gold and then and then something? Let, let me know. Thank you. Yeah, when more dollars go into circulation, it nets, it does necessarily affect the value of the other dollars, but it takes time for the circulation to affect it. You know, if you print a ton of money, it's not going to immediately have an effect. Um, yeah, I was wondering if someone could explain. I've heard something that the gold standard is a peaceful currency, and I was wondering um, if someone could explain that. Thank you. Okay, so I'm going to touch on... The idea of like when you physically add a new thing to it, uh, an easy way to do it is apply Marxian fundamentals, right? Value is derived from uh, the, the value it takes to create that object, right? So, you know, if you have an object, it's worth something based on the labor that's created to make it, as well as like the scarcity that uh, that object has, right? So it's like, okay, uh, if you have two pieces of paper that um, are your currency, you only have two and you give them to two people and then you create a third one and you give it to a third person, you have lowered the value that the other uh, pieces of paper have, right? You're creating uh, that new um, 
you know, you're taking away that value from the first object. Uh, to answer the other question, I, I can't answer this in full. Uh, I would not personally think that the gold standard is more peaceful because wars used to be fought over collecting more gold, right? Gold standard means I have as much money as I have gold reserves. So, you know, I will go to war uh, in order to get more gold or because I'm losing too much gold, i.e. Britain and the opium wars where they're losing too much silver in China. So they start selling opium to try to counteract that. Uh, just my uh, answer there. Thank you. I wanted to ask uh, the comment from the economics committee about that same question. Uh, this term, the gold standard is a peaceful thing. Have you ever heard that before? I have never heard that. Uh, no, I've, uh, I've not heard that expression before put exactly that way. But there is, uh, it does relate to something that's been going on for the last uh, 40 years or so. I mean, first of all, the gold standard, we were on the gold standard up until 1972. We fought World War One and World War II under the gold standard. Um, I think what the comment is referring to is something contemporary where, where the United States is in trying to support the value of the dollar will conduct a military adventure overseas. So, for example, we have in Hong Kong a big financial market where a lot of investments take place. But if you start a war in Southeast Asia, people in Hong Kong are going to be very nervous about their investments in Hong Kong. They don't know what's going to happen with the war going on in Southeast Asia. And so they'll send all their dollars to New York where they'll be safe. And that drives up the value of the stock market and it drives up the value of the dollar. I think that's what the expression is referring to. Of course, that's all done under fiat currency that we now have. It's all done after the dropping of the gold standard. Thank you. Yeah, so uh, I wanted to say, um, what is money? Money is a, a commodity that is an equivalent for all the commodities, right? You exchange a commodity against another, but you use money to do so. So normally, in the ideal world, say a socialist world, really, uh, the amount of money would be equal to the amount of commodities. And, um, you know, like an economy based on use values, not exchange value, where money makes money. That's a nonsense. You know, money making money. What the hell is that? Uh, I still can't make sense. Of like of like wanting to advocate for the restoration uh, of commodity money on the simple basis that if all governments are the originators of um, of of whatever the currency in use is, the uh, the uh, uh, the government uses its monopoly of force to enforce some kind of collection regime. To induce uh, mass demand for that money, and 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 therefore all the uh, actors in that economy has to come up with some way of getting uh, getting that giving getting those like government issued tokens. In uh, in, in what way uh, does uh, creating more money necessarily create more inflation? If 
if I if if I, if I've printed like a hundred dollars uh, for uh, a country of uh, fifty people, and those fifty people, some of them are uh, soldiers and uh, other government officials uh, who then who then filter that into the rest of the economy uh, to their spending, and then the rest of the people have the have the money to uh, pay their pay their taxes. I just want people to be clear on one thing about increasing the money supply. Increasing the money supply is the worst economic thing that can happen to the working man, to the working person. Absolutely the worst possible thing. Because automatically, you're going to, you know, the, what you get paid every, every week, it's going gonna, it's gonna to go down in value. So when these guys increase the money supply, you know, they have a whole thing. It's called the wealth effect bunch of bs they say the wealth effect will bring this money down to you it doesn't happen money money supply increases your dollar is worth less automatically and uh this is has been discussed since the 18th century uh richard kentian an irishman i might say pointed this out early on when they were increasing the money supply around the French court, and he pointed out the dangers of this and how it would be harmful to workers. And of course, Marx echoed this in his section on money and capital. Thank you. Yeah, as regards to adding money to the money supply, from my understanding, um, money is just the representative form. It's just an agreed on form. Um, the actual value in society is induced by labor. So adding just the fake number of dollars to the money supply does not actually result in an increase in production or any type of economic growth. And as a result, that's where the weakening comes in because you're not actually producing anything more, but yet there's more money value in this system. Is that correct? Just, just quickly, the comrade answered uh, her own question. Um, you increase the money supply without increasing economic output, without increasing industrial production. Yes, automatically you're going to have inflation. And so uh, this is what we've been experiencing the last two years, is that the money supply was increased by $4 trillion between March 2020 and roughly speaking October uh, 2021. $4 trillion. And, uh, and this is why the inflation all of a sudden exploded after having been kept under control for so many years. Since a growing economy, of course, needs additional money when there's population increase, how do we have a balance? I, I think the point is simply that uh, you need to have the money supply um, linked to your production. If the money supply is linked to your industrial production, uh, for example, in in, uh, in the 1950s, industrial production was increasing in the U.S. and the money supply appropriately increased. Um, this, is, this is the relationship that, this is the way it should be. Um, but of course, right now, it's not, the way it's, it's not the way it's been for 40 years. And that's why we're having these problems. Um, yeah, I've actually been doing a little research um, about quantitative easing. And um, here's my question is that, you know, since the money supply increased so much, you know, over the past, I guess, 20 years or so, 
And now, you know, when they're trying to do these quantitative easing, quantitative tightening, you know, increasing or decreasing the money supply, and the tools don't seem to be working the way they once did, is that because they increase the money supply so much that you need like exponential amounts to, um, to make a difference? In the last two years, the money supply has increased by $4 trillion. Um, that was about, well, let's see, the total money supply is now about uh, $22 trillion. $4 trillion would be about uh, 20% of the money supply. So all of a sudden, the money supply increases by 20% in the course of a year and a half. Now, from everything we've been talking about tonight, about how too much money causes an increase in prices, that's a completely insane thing to do. You might, you might say, why did they do this? It seems completely nuts. You think, wow, the bankers must not be completely crazy because it's not good for them to have so much inflation. The reason is, is that there was a crisis in the what's called the repo market. The repo market is for short-term borrowing for banks and investment banks and other financial institutions. That's how they settle their day, through the repo market. And that repo market started to break down in fall of 2019. That's why they increased the money supply so much in 2020, trying to keep that under control. And of course, in their desperation to solve that, because that was the thing, that was the thing that killed, that killed the, uh, the 2008 crisis that caused the 2008 crisis, the repo market. So, it, so with that crisis going on, they were desperate. They did something stupid. And as a result, we have the inflation. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. I'm glad everyone came tonight. For new people who are here, I'm going to give you a quote from Lenin. Any party that cannot defend itself, he's talking about a Bolshevik party, does not work to be a Bolshevik party. He also uses that, that any revolution that cannot defend itself is a revolution not worth defending. And so therefore, what happened to us is that basically it was over the issue of the Ukraine. There were people who came into our fold who basically, and an, an, an analysis was the same as the U.S. State Department, that, um, uh, that the, um, the enemy is Russia and Putin, and the enemy is not the fascist in Ukraine. That's what it comes down to. And then they tried to wreck our party. And so now we're trying to get back the stuff they took from us. And that's why we have a court case with them. It's very simple. Because if you don't defend this school, it's going to go out of existence. I want to thank everybody. Good night.